Welcome, everyone, to the Behind the Budget Podcast. I'm Kushik Paul, and I'm joined by my co-host, Carl Cottingham. Carl, how are you doing today? I'm very excited, Paul. There's two great stories I want to get into, and I just can't wait to get into it. All right. Let's hear what those new stories are from the movie world. Well, first off, we're kind of movie tangents. This is more television, but it's prestige television. So we're starting off with The Guardian in the UK. Uh, Martin Bellum writes, Jodie Whittaker to leave Doctor Who along with showrunner, says BBC. Doctor Who star Jodie Whittaker and showrunner Chris Chibnall will both leave the program in 2022, the BBC has confirmed. Whittaker, 39, was the 13th actor and the first woman to regularly play the main character in the long-lived series. Whittaker paid tribute to Chibnall and the Doctor Who team in a statement saying, In 2017, I opened my glorious gift box of size 13 shoes. I could not have guessed the brilliant adventures, worlds, and wonders I was to see in them. I will carry with the Doctor in the lessons I've learned forever. Chibnall said, Jody and I made a free series and out pack with each other at the start of this once-in-a-lifetime blast. So now our shift is done. We're handing back the TARDIS, t- TARDIS keys. In social media posts, the BB said the p- pair leave in a trio of specials, culminating in an epic blockbuster to air in autumn 2022 as part of the BBC's centenary celebrations. So my first thing that stuck out to me was that this is actually fairly standard for Doctor Who runs. Um, starting back in the 60s with the second actor who played the lead character, Free Seasons is the norm for a Doctor's run on the show. But what stuck out to me was the showrunner was departing as well, which uh, beginning in 2005, showrunners for Doctor Who have run for at least two Doctors so that they can show off the versatility. So the previous showrunner for Doctor Who was amazing. A man you're probably familiar, Stephen Moffat, who uh, created the Sherlock series that launched Benedict Cumberbatch to global acclaim. And he was behind the more lighthearted 11th Doctor era and the darker, darker, more pragmatic 12th Doctor era. So another thing that leaps out to me is that this is going to be a widely anticipated search within the British television community is that the role of the Doctor has often been a springboard to international success. You only have to look at actors like David Tennant, Matt Smith, and Peter Capaldi in recent years. They've gotten to be in some pretty big projects. Capaldi, in particular, is in the new Suicide Squad movie, for example. Uh, But for now, the focus is going to be more on getting a new showrunner than the actor as the showrunner is going to be the man man or woman who will oversee the creative direction, the stories, and also the writing of the new series. And because next year is going to be the 100th anniversary of the BBC, we can expect who the new Doctor and who the new showrunner will be named before this era wraps up. So like you said, yeah, I agree with you that the actress leaving Doctor Who makes total sense. The showrunner leaving, not so much. But, hey, it shows the amount of, I don't know, companions, uh, camaraderie those two have. Of Like, they want to work together. Um, I, I can kind of see the standard argument for the Doctor leaving, but 
there could have been an exception made that, hey, we want this showrunner, so let's keep this actress going. But I think they, it, it might also just be a creative decision where they've gone through most of their good ideas and they just want to try something new. All in all, I wish them all the best. I wonder who they're going to bring afterwards because on the side of television, I had seen some uh, rather impressive names come out of Disney Plus shows. So Mm -hmm. the showrunner for um, Handmaid's Tale doing Falcon and Winter Soldier and Kate Heron doing the Loki series, I could see that whole idea of seeing these good showrunners from other projects before and bringing them on and bringing their take to Doctor Who, which, again, let's be honest, with that this many seasons under its belt, all the best choice they can make is new ideas. They really don't want something safe and standard. They definitely want to branch out. So they have quite a large talent pool to pull from. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine if this is... I do wonder, is COVID going to be doing something good for the show or worse for the show in the sense of production i feel like they have ironed out those details but just finding someone do you think people are more booked um well the big thing was that the series the third series that whitaker and chibnall are working on that actually got cut down considerably uh because of covid it was originally going to be one and done adventures like they've often been but now it's going to be a six-episode surreal, which is actually a throwback to old to older Doctor Who programs. Like, they've never been one-and-done adventures in the past. They've been single parts of a bigger story for e- for every couple of episodes. Like, very surrealized back in the day. So it's kind of a throwback to that. But it was more out of necessity than something they wanted to do. So... I have to stop you right there. Do you say... Did you mean serialized? No, I said yes, yeah, surreal. Like they call it like in the in British programming when it's called a surreal, it's like I describe it like a Saturday morning surreal. Like you Yeah, I'm just thinking about the pronunciation, isn't it serial? No, like, it's pr- it's in a series, right? Yeah, that's what I said. Serialized, not surreal like No, I said serialized. Okay. No, it was just a pr- the pronunciation was off. It, it's oh. a thing of like, oh, I can totally see it being pronounced either way, but yeah. that's what got yeah, me that, tripped up. Yeah, that's fu- yeah, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, but uh, yeah, they did it out of necessity rather than something they wanted to actively do, and it's going to be interesting to see because my suspicion is that the three specials are probably the one-and-done adventure stuff that they were originally going to have for this series, but they're just going to push it off to the side to work on that later, but focus on the main uh, storyline for now. I can't imagine, like... Obviously, this is not their choice, so they did the best they could, but I can't see this being, like, too much of a bad decision. No, I don't think it's a bad decision. And like I said, this is actually fairly standard. In fact, rumors of Whitaker deciding to leave have been cropping up since November. So this is not out of the ordinary. This was no behind-the-scenes drama. This is fairly standard for this program. 
in an odd way that is progress being made female doctor and her leaving is fairly standard just the usual fanfare but if we since we're talking about women actresses and splits let's head back across the atlantic to america where the biggest split in hollywood is probably going underway so i'd like to turn your attention to the wall street journal for this one and it's a big one ladies and gentlemen scarlett johansson sues disney over black widow streaming release this is from both joe flint and eric schwaritzel Black Widow has a new enemy, the Walt Disney Company. Scarlett Johansson, star of the latest Marvel movie Black Widow, filed a lawsuit Thursday in Los Angeles Superior Court against Disney, alleging her contract was breached when the media giant released the film on its Disney Plus streaming service at the same time as its theatrical debut. Ms. Johansson said in the suit that her agreement with Disney's Marvel Entertainment guaranteed an exclusive theatrical release, and her salary was based in large part on the box office performance of the film. Disney intentionally induced Marvel's breach of the agreement without justification in order to prevent Mr. Hansen from realizing the full benefit of her bargain with Marvel. A Disney spokesman said of, Mr. Johan- of Ms. Johansson's suit had no merit and is especially sad and distressing in its callous disregard for the horrific and prolonged global effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. So, uh, <laughs> uh, this is becoming... Uh, this is very harsh words. So, uh, th- so the first thing that jumped out to mind when I first heard the story was this is the exact same thing that gave HBO Max a giant headache a couple months ago. And now what HBO Max was able to avoid, Disney has gone and done it. And so uh, what I have written down here is that the suit also alleges that the Scarlett, jo- that, uh, Scarlett Johansson's agents tried to renegotiate the contract to similar deals as the Wonder Woman 1984 agreement, which was Jenkins and Godot got a sum to compensate for the lower box office that was to be expected. But apparently Disney was allegedly unresponsive. So between the earlier HBO Max debacle, like you had Christopher Nolan slamming the service, you have reports of Denzel Washington being very angry that his film The Little Things was day and date on HBO Max. Um, we have the streaming era of the theatrical film is being is going to have talent being a lot more aggressive to collect what they believe they're owed. And it's not just Johansson. There is Hollywood gossip. And this is just rumors. This isn't confirmed and if it is going to happen, it could happen soon. Emma Stone is rumored to sue over Cruella's release, as is Emily Blunt for The Jungle Cruise. So, you're probably thinking to yourself right now, what on earth was Disney thinking when they were doing this? So, I want to turn your attention to another article from The Hollywood Reporter that... I'm not going to go through the entire article, but if you're interested in finding it for yourself, it's called Disney vs. Scarlett Johansson, Why a Ton of Lawsuits Maybe Next. And this is by Kim Masters. This was published a few days ago. So the Cliff Notes version of this is that the short answer is it was amateur hour by leadership. Bob Chapek may not have ordered the scathing statement attacking Scarlett Johansson, 
but the proverbial you-know-what has hit the fan. Chapik has also, was also moved up to the CEO gig via the numbers and theme parks side of it. Before he was head of Disney theme parks, he was in home video for a time, but he was most, mostly cut his teeth in the consumer side. And so he was brought on to help oversee the expansion of Disney+. Plus. So now that you've seen the Johansson lawsuit going down, the proverbial hammer is waiting to drop, and others, such as mega producer Jason Blum, have suggested that the legalities will have to play out, but firmly believes that profit sharing in the streaming era is coming, whether the media companies like it or not. So, I know I've bombarded you with a lot of information. Paul, what's your gut reaction? So, first reaction, Scarlett Johansson should absolutely sue because she is owed the extra money. I have made my thoughts clear, like, on social media about how, yeah, this is just pure profit for Disney off of Disney+. Plus. You know, they already charge a subscription fee every month that counts for, like, all the server costs Mm -hmm. and everything. The extra money from this one film is pure profit for them. Minus, I guess there is a little bit of a cut when you go through like Apple or Google to buy the movie. There's a small 15% cut. Other than that, yeah, you're not sharing this with any uh, theater or anything per ticket, set, per, per ticket sale. So there was nothing wrong with cutting that deal ahead of time. Like you mentioned, this was the same thing HBO Max went through. They did the smart thing with Wonder Woman 1984 where they worked out a deal ahead of time before they announced Wonder Woman 1984 would go into streaming, if if I'm correct, right? They worked out a deal before they announcing yeah. it. Yeah. They fell on their fell on their face when they announced every other movie going to HBO Max before working out deals. So mm-hmm. that's where they definitely um, messed up. Yeah. Here it's very odd why Disney would mess up so much. You could go the cynical route, which is, hey, this is a big company trying to use their power and hope that, you know, someone smaller like an actress wouldn't sue over this, that they would just be happy that they had any deal with Disney at all. I think that is a very, I don't think that's fairly accurate. What I think is truly answer is like really bad leadership of like bringing in a CEO from the home video and uh, park side mm-hmm. right before COVID hits. Now, to be clear, no one could know COVID no, hit. No, like yeah. when Bob Iger decided to go with Bob Chapek, nobody in their right mind ever expected COVID-19. They right. were expect like Iger on his thinking, he was hoping he was trying to appoint, appoint a CEO who would be a good custodian not someone who would rock the boat. And unfortunately, they kind of had to rock the boat quite significantly because, well, COVID. Right. The entire world got rocked by a wave, so boat had A tsunami wave in this case. Yeah. But it, it would be this hope that, like, someone would have overseen this deal with the knowledge that, hey, Disney is an IP company. Their IP is the most valuable. And not just their intellectual property, but also the people they get to work with them. The relationships Marvel had made with Taika Waititi, with um, John Favreau especially, have paid off so many dividends. You want to keep these creatives, these actors and actresses happy. There is no reason why this little bit of money 
should have stopped that from happening. A deal should have been made. And honestly, this is like negligence from a business running standpoint of like, this is your most important thing. And you allowed it to go into an issue, a very public issue. And the final take I have is where this is where the world is at right now, where Mm -hmm. I think uh, before when it came to these um, Hollywood style dramas, many actors didn't believe they would have the public on their side of like asking for more money. Many people would scoff and say, oh, you guys are just super rich. So why do you want more money? But now we're in a world where this is fair. I think most of the public is on Scarlett Johansson's side of like, yeah, Disney made this decision. That led to her getting less money. That's unfair. She should be properly compensated. And it all is some... I did look up some legal experts' opinion on the suit, and they do think that she does have merit. And it just depends on the precise wording of the contract that's going to play the biggest factor. But for the most part, they seem to agree that she actually has a pretty good case on her side. And as you were saying, pleasing the creative side, Kevin Feige is is reported in many Hollywood trades that he was not happy about this, that he believed that Johansson should just, look, Disney, you should just make up with Scarlett and just give her what she's owed. And in the Hollywood Reporter article I cited, I didn't write down, but the one thing that isn't laid at the feet of Bob Iger it, is that he's not getting any blame for this. This is all squarely on Chapik. And yeah, even, the team he's running. And even a former Disney executive, would, there's no name attached, but they stated that you would not have this under Bob Iger's watch. Right. And that's kind of a damning indictment on Chapik's end. Yeah. To have this where, again, just the state of where everything is, you don't have parks making money anymore. You don't have the home release market. You have Disney Plus. That is your premier service and the few movies you're bringing out. To have so much of your company with a few things coming out and to have one of those big tent poles, probably the most highest grossing movie out in the U.S. anyway, this entire year, to have this type of press tied to it. It's really damning, and and there I wonder if it could technically be considered um, securities fraud. Of like, hey, you knew this was bad. Why did you, the CEO, do this? Shareholders might be angry. <laughs> they might that, be able to sue. Well, there is a history of shareholders. Uh, there is a history of shareholders having that history of having a bit of a revolt over at the Disney side because back in 2005, CEO uh, Michael Eisner was effectively dethroned by the shareholders back then. So eh, I just think that Mr. Chapik may want to watch his back in case things go sideways. I don't think now is the time to remove the CEO necessarily, but it is one of those things, like, it's not good for him. And no. like you said, an executive calling him out and saying, like, but this wouldn't happen under Iger, it's, like, very telling. But I think that just makes us appreciate what Bi- Bob Iger did and how he was very, very focused on the clear mission 
the idea of like making Kevin Feige report directly to him by mm-hmm. Ron Perlmutter. Um, the idea of Captain America Civil War, a movie that wasn't going to make a lot of money, having an Avengers-like budget because of the storytelling and because mm-hmm. it was worth it for the franchise in general. Um, seeing the bigger picture over just the small, minute details. And so it's a very interesting story. I also want to believe that legally she ha- she's in the right because she can say there were damages caused by this decision that were unfair the the as we said it was never renegotiated so the original contract would have been only based on box office with the understanding that the box office would come first then streaming and so on and so forth when that changed as a decision by disney that gave a monetary pain towards her paycheck and I think that's arguable in court. Right. So, I think that's everything that I can think of on film and television. And it's kind of been an exciting bit of news in the entertainment world. But what do we have in the video game industry? Well, we have quite a few stories, but I wanted to focus on some new hardware finally coming out. And for a change, the hardware is all on the handheld side. Oh, nice. Nintendo is releasing a new Switch, but not the one we want. This is the Switch OLED model. This is Dieter Bone at The Verge. Um, Sitting down in Nintendo's offices in Redwood City, California yesterday, I already knew all of the main details on the new Switch OLED model. It has a larger 7-inch OLED screen, an improvised kickstand, increased internal storage, and very minor design tweaks. It's not the, quote, Switch Pro, end quote, that many have been hoping for. It's just a Switch with a bigger screen, bigger, nicer screen. Continues, I knew all that going in, but after playing half hour's worth of Mario Kart and Breath of the Wild, I believe the word just in the previous sentence is unfair. The Switch OLED model has a bigger, nicer screen, and that's more than enough to justify its existence and perhaps its $350 price. So a few thoughts right off the bat that I had was, Okay, what this is Nintendo fixing a lot of its issues. The main issue right now is inflation. Inflation mm-hmm. is ramp is going up way too high and for a $300 system in reality it should really be a $350 system. However, with electronics you cannot increase their price after the fact. You can only go down. So what's the other option? Releasing a new model. Mm-hmm. Now, clearly with this option, they went straight for the handheld player community which based on reports that we know it's the majority of switch owners they play handheld only they are not changing the internals so the same screen resolution and the same chip to keep cost low their main main thing that they're switching is like the kickstand and the oled screen there were reports of nintendo buying a bunch of oled screens off of samsung so this makes perfect sense and so with this better screen is an added cost but it's definitely not a 50 dollars cost so this will make sure the profit margin still stays high for switch which again is the best selling hardware still with ps5 and xbox series consoles switch is still number one so there is enough demand for this and i think there's enough demand from the market of people like you and me who have bought our switches in the very first run and a bunch of people who think, oh, you know what? A nicer screen would be worth it. 
I'll mm-hmm. shell out the 350 because I don't need better resolution or better performance necessarily. However, I think I'm in the other ops camp where I need better performance, not nec- resolution necessarily, but just better frame rates is what I'm looking for in a more pro-ish model later on, hopefully. Mm-hmm. But again, with all these, they are catering to the handheld market. They throw a bone to the people that love to, to play docked when that technically the docking station now has an Ethernet port. I don't... You can buy it separately. I wouldn't recommend it. You can just buy like a $10 adapter for your current Switch dock. There's no reason for that's that. Actually, that's actually how I've got it set up right now, actually. Yeah, it works fine. Yeah, yeah, and so, uh, okay, it, this is very focused on the handheld uh, market. Yeah. And from what I understand, the kickstand especially is like a very nice addition where there was a huge market for stands for Nintendo Switches just because the original kickstand is like very flimsy, easily falls down. It's like the size of a ruler. Yeah, and it's not really very adjustable. So No. Yeah. Um, th- this one's is more like a Surface uh, tablet. They have yeah. a nice mechanism. And, of course, the OLED screen. Um, as many articles have pointed out, the, the vibrancy of the colors is really nice. Um, as they put it, it's less of a compromise when you're playing handheld. And it should be said, tech-wise, uh, tech le- it uses less power than an LED screen. So... You're going to have at least the same or better battery life. Marginally better. We're not working miracles here. Probably, probably like maybe a few, a few percentage points maybe. Right. But again, depending on what you play, and we know this like most people love to play indies on their Nintendo Switch. They are not heavy on the processor or the screen, so you could get an extra hour's worth out of it. And so that... That is the whole new story with Nintendo bringing in the Switch OLED model of mainly its inflation of like, this is kind of the new de facto Switch. I do kind of wonder why they still kept the $300 model lying around, but I can see this being like the one they really want people to get along with the Mm -hmm. Switch Lite of like, you know, that one's for kids. This one is for like the premium experience of playing handheld and the switch in the middle is mainly there just to push people to that three fifty dollar yeah. model. It's sort of like the little devil on your shoulder, the switch OLED. It's like, oh, I'm only fifty dollars more compared to the other one. It's worth the extra cash. Yeah, I would definitely say so. If anyone's in the mo- in the market for a new switch, that is the one to get. If you were thinking about the three hundred dollar one, definitely yeah. go for the three fifty. But of course, I will always say that the Switch Lite is the perfect kids device. Mm-hmm. Um, I recently got one for my nephew, and my god, that build quality, it reminds me of Game Boys, of like, I don't believe it breaks at all. And, I, and that was like my first reaction when I was reading some of the reactions to the Switch OLED. This is actually standard practice for Nintendo, because they've always done a mid-cycle update for their handhelds. Like, you yeah. remember, because when the first, the original Game Boy Advance came out, it it was actually kind of very similar in appearance to what the Switch uh, handheld is right now. Yes. But then when Game Boy Advance SP comes along, it's a little clamshell type little right. system. Yeah. And we saw that with the DS, DS Lite, and so mm-hmm. forth. I don't think anyone remembers the original, original DS. Most people remember the DS Lite. Yeah, I, I, I'm a, I remembered the original DS because I had an old 
elementary school friend who brought it to school one time and I kind of stole it from him to play <laughs> Mario. And then a couple months later, I got the DS Lite for myself and I was like, are you sure if this is the same thing? Right. It's uh, definitely a uh, noticeable difference. So Very much. If anything, what I'm mainly shocked by is that they waited this long to bring out the Switch OLED. Um, mm-hmm. Usually refreshes come out quicker but i think it has to do with just how well the switch had sold for so long that okay they could extend it out to like now where inflation is really creeping up on them and they really need to uh make some extra money for that but i am still hopeful for that pro version i'm looking forward to hopefully a pro version as well but i definitely think that if they bundle the Switch OLED with, say, Metroid Dread, that's going to sell. Well, the weird thing is, like, Nintendo doesn't want to send sell any um, games along with it. At least when they release a new hardware, they don't try to bundle it immediately. The nice thing is, it is the same release date as mm-hmm. Metroid Dread. So it will be one of those things where they're really pushing for that. Well, like, hey. yeah, like, it's a bundle. Yeah. In quotation marks. Yeah, um, retailers could give, like, small discounts if you buy them both at the same time. or Oh, you know GameStop's probably... going to do something like that. Yeah, obviously, like, when you go out to get it that day, you're going to look at, like, huh, what new game should I get for this brand-new screen? And then you have Metroid Dread, which this very contrast-heavy game in, like, dark and light moments that really make the OLED screen shine. It's like, oh, sold. Yeah. So we're going from this our, this new story of Nintendo, where their biggest problem is creeping up inflation, to another story about the new Valve Steam Deck, where Valve's main issue is the Nintendo Switch, in that much of the indie game sales have shifted over to the Switch, and Valve mm-hmm. realizes, hey, people want to play these on the go. Other companies are trying to make handheld PCs for Steam. Doesn't seem to be working Oh, well, Thanos style, I guess I'll just do it myself. <laughs> so, this is Tom Marks from IGN. The Steam Deck has a form factor similar to that of a slightly larger Nintendo Switch, but with the capabilities of a full gaming PC. It runs a modified version of Valve SteamOS, complete with a new console-like interface for easy navigation of both Steam Store and your Steam Library. But it also provides access to an unrestricted computer desktop where any third-party applications can be installed including non-Steam games or launchers. In terms of hardware, the Steam Deck has a 7-inch, 1280x800 resolution, 60Hz LCD screen, a custom AMD APU featuring a 4-core, 8-thread CPU paired with 8 RDNA 2 compute units for the GPU, and 16GB of LPDDR5 RAM. Practically speaking, that makes a substantial amount stronger than the Switch, allowing it to run modern games impressively well, as a point of reference, I was able to play Jedi Fallen Order on an in-development Steam Deck at high graphical settings with little to no issue. It can even suspend running games like a console, and Valve says the intent is to really give players access to their entire Steam library on the go. There are many other details uh, surrounding it that we will get into, but uh, one final detail is the pricing. So for the 64 gigabyte model with EMC... EMMC storage, it would be $400. Uh, the tier up is 256 gigs for the with 256 gigs of NVMe SSD storage 
for about 530 and I believe that the 512 gigabyte model is 600 something and it comes with the etched screen to remove glare so all that together what are your thoughts the minute I heard that you could install other applications on it the first thing that leapt to my mind was holy crap this is that portable Xbox that people have been wanting for years, isn't it? I wish, but there are complicated things surrounding that. Yeah, like that's what I meant. Like that was my first thought, but then I read into it and it's like, oh, there's definitely a bit of a monkey's paw situation to this, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, so obviously this is a gaming PC through yes. and through. You can remove the Steam OS. You could put Windows on this. With Steam OS, it's a fork of Linux. So mm -hmm. technically, many games are designed with DirectX, Windows's driver APIs in mind. So to get around that uh, on the side of Linux, th this is like only a recent development, but there is a new tool called Proton that adds that layer of like, hey, you can play Windows games on Linux. So this is like what I see this and when we get to like the APU, the AMD APU, this is like all the stars aligning at the perfect time to make this happen. Where yes, we Valve's OS is made out of Linux, but hey, there's new development on Proton side, so we could actually run real games that couldn't run on Linux before on this, and most people will be happy. Hey, we need a good low power chip that isn't ARM because most PC games are built for x86. So Okay, well, AMD, AMD's um, Ryzen, uh, Zen 2 architecture, the 7 nanometer process, is finally out here. Okay, let's see what we can do with that. And here, let's put in a 4-core, which by today's standards is rather low, but definitely capable, 8-thread, with 8 RDNA 2 compute units, which is around the same thing as like a budget um, CPU-GPU hybrid that you might put on like a starter PC just to play some like um, esports titles like Valorant. Very low powered um, in comparison to other PC specs, but it is very low power usage. It's it, I believe it's a TDP of like 10 watts. I could be wrong, but that is extremely low especially on the PC side. We're thinking like GPUs taking up 100 watts at a time. Or, or even more if you're trying to get like a RTX 3080. It, well, good luck trying to find one of those. Yeah. So it's using less power. It's very specifically designed. You cannot buy a system like that straight out of AMD. And the best key thing is it's a 7-inch screen with an 800p resolution, which is perfect because... When the lower resolution that you can get, the more games you can run at really nice graphical settings, but you don't need the powerful GPU to push those pixels out. And so I could see a case where there is games running with a slightly toned down version of ray tracing on this mm -hmm. screen. Um, and finally, the last thing I want to talk about was the 16 gigs of LPDDR5 RAM which makes a big difference. That faster RAM means that, hey, yeah. we can keep up with the the type of games from the PS5 and Xbox Series consoles. Fast RAM, faster storage. We can keep up with these and have them port over. Like, 
it's a very impressive little machine. Like, I watched this tech YouTuber, uh, Linus Sebastian, Linus Tech Tips, and he just uh, got his hands on it just the other day, and it looked like an amazing little machine. My only concern was how... Who will this directly appeal to in Valve's orbit? Like, are we looking at people we're, who... We're looking at Switch owners. Yeah, we're looking at... Yeah, that's a lot, like, were we looking at Switch owners who want that power that they wanted from the Switch Pro that they never got? Yeah, that's exactly who they are focusing on. The, the Switch owners that have a vast Steam library already and are like, mm -hmm. oh, I can play all my games here. We can't discount the power of like the Steam Summer Sale and how many, how many people's backlogs have been like flooded with games because of those. And hey, to have a portable machine where you get to play them all, um, we have that. Uh, we have like this. How should I say this? Op two sides of different coins between Nintendo and Valve at this point. Nintendo mm -hmm. is able to attract a lot of indie developers because. They are able to charge higher prices, and in the game development, is costly, so they want that. But their main problem is their system is not powerful enough to port many AAA games to. Only a few, mostly related to Bethesda, and their very scalable id tech games like Wolfenstein and Doom have been some mm -hmm. outliers. But like many games like Jedi Fallen Order, just can't scale down to that system no. and on the valve side what they have is a system that can take in everything from the triple a side and and put on this machine the but what they really care about is the indie game sales which they've been losing to nintendo which that is kind of crazy when you stop to really think about it because years ago when we think of indie games we're thinking about these little upstarts on the pc side and triple a being exclusively a console deal but yeah, now, it, but now the pendulum has kind of shifted the other way around. Yeah, it's an in interesting place where, like, for AAA games, people will switch launchers, you know, to the Epic Games launcher or to Origin to Uplay. For indie games, they will not. So retaining a large customer base like that is very important to Valve, where they know, hey, if indies go to our platform to sell, that means AAA will be forced to stay in our platform where we'll make the real money. But we need that sort of loyalty. If we lose that indie market and they focus more on Nintendo, well, that means people might remove Steam. They might just go to a different storefront for the AAA titles on PC. So this is definitely their attempt to get some of that market share back. Uh, I have hesitations only because of steam machines and mm -hmm. how what a horrible announcement revealed that, that was a complete shit show to pardon my french that was like they didn't have a coherent vision of what the steam machine wanted to be the only thing they seemed to have a coherent idea about was the controller they wanted but not yeah. the actual device yeah. but it seems like at least on face value, they seem to have gotten their act together. They clearly have an idea of what the Steam Deck is. Mm -hmm. And I am uh, curious. Uh, yeah, go ahead. And I think a big telling point is the pricing. 
$400 for the base model of the machine, even though it's very low power in comparison to the higher end models, they really mm -hmm. want you to get the true SSDs. And I think for most consumers, they should get it. But to have yeah. the entry point at $400 is extremely competitive for what you're getting. Remember, this is a PC. You can plug into a monitor and plug in a keyboard and mouse and play most games perfectly on your monitor. And when I say most games, I'm talking about like esports titles, like right. a, a kid that wants a quick way, way to play like CSGO. This works easily. And so um, I'm just shocked at them being so aggressive because this is a loss leader of a product. They're going to lose yeah. money on each. They're going to lose unit. money and they are directly competing with the Switch OLED. It's only $50 more than that one. But Valve's argument is that hey, you have this giant Steam library over here. We have this little device where you can play all these games. You can play CSGO on the go. I wonder if the next Switch, whether it was OLED or not or Pro, was 400 would that have given them leeway to, be say, 450 for the entry price? That I can't answer because... But I kind of feel like it'd be close to 400 I feel like what, with how they announced this, either one or two things happens. Either they knew they had to wait for this new Switch model to be announced. So they mm -hmm. wanted to announce it earlier, but they had all the rumors. They knew a new Switch was coming out. They read everything we do. So they just waited until it was finally announced. And then they went through with it. Or they were taken aback by it of like, hey... Nintendo just announced this new Switch. It's not the Pro, the one that everyone wanted. Oh my god, this is our opportunity. We need to seize this and like really give them the Pro that people are talking about right now and are wanting. We see it in like audience reactions. They want this Switch Pro. Let's give it to them now, even though not everything is final. I think it's a mix of I think it was a mix of both. Like they played the waiting game for the Switch OLED, but I think so. The Val the people at Valve are not particularly dumb or anything like that. They are fairly intelligent people, and I think they would have known the history of Nintendo, where that they probably had a good idea that this probably wasn't going to be a super powerful Switch update. Remember, they everyone thought it was going to be. They to be fought fair. it. They thought it was because they willed it to be a super upgrade every because... single like um rumor surrounding um bloomberg was pointing towards this being like a substantial update and it is rather interesting because that's all rumor but again the actual practice of nintendo is they've never been a hyper uh, company that's ever focused on powerful pieces they've never been like that well, so, one, one thing people were hoping though was that they had learned from their mistakes so something like the wii u which didn't get a lot of ports because it was so different than mm -hmm. ps4 and xbox one just developing a game for it because it well, was just, a different architecture made it difficult for no reason so but i think genuinely that they would have had an inkling that it probably wasn't gonna be this super pro and then when they heard that it definitely wasn't going to be the pro, they realized, yes, we've got it. Yeah. Seize the day. Yes. Make the most out of this while you still can. Um, my, my one interesting tidbit after all this news came out was that Microsoft 
and Epic Games were congratulating Valve of like, hey, we commend you for having this open platform that others are allowed to build off of. Technically, their Steam OS is open to be licensed for free by other companies. Other companies are able to make Steam Deck-like machines with the same software. People are allowed to build things for that software. People, this whole machine can be can remove its software and you can put whatever software you want on it. So those two companies in their long fight against Apple, Epic especially, wanted to take this and use this to show like, hey, this is what we want. We don't want Apple's system of like locking everything down and not putting other things in it. But I do wonder if there is ulterior motives like, hey, maybe Microsoft makes a fork of the new Windows 11 that's like gonna be perfect for this machine. Or Epic looks at this and goes, hey, we can build a version of Steam. Uh, sorry, we can build a version like like a launcher like Steam for Steam OS the Epic Games launcher and make sure all our games work on there as well using like the Proton compatibility layer. Like they might see some value to that. I'm sure this is going to be the easiest thing ever. Obviously Xbox will have uh, X cloud running on this machine, the streaming oh, service. You definitely but, know it's coming, but I wonder if they're going to make an extra app to try and get game pass for PC on this machine of like, Hey, the, the games under that subscription for PC, we want to make sure they're extremely compatible with SteamOS and then make an app specifically for SteamOS to run those off of. Like, considering how the Microsoft mission has been, hey, we want everybody to be able to play our games. That's why we're pushing Game Pass so much. I feel like we're going to see a dedicated app for the Steam Deck that has Microsoft games on it, whether it's streaming or genuine Game Pass downloading, it's going to come. I hope that day comes because Microsoft always wanted Game Pass on Nintendo Switch. They always did. So this is like the second best option they got. So maybe if that happens, this is more pressure to Nintendo of like, why not just let Game Pass run on the Nintendo Switch? What's the harm? Because like we're losing to Valve if that's a big thing people care about um so in terms of just steam sales like i see why valve is doing this Mm -hmm. they will not make money off of it but they will keep a huge fan fan base devoted to steam under it and it's smart that they did it because otherwise worser things could have happened to valve so this is a good move on their part but what the way I see the industry going, this is not going to be perfect for them. Epic will find a way to be on this platform. Microsoft will find a way and say whatever you want. But like Game Pass or PC can cut into Valve game sales. And so it's going to be interesting to see what happens. But this is definitely the, good, the best move by Valve. And in Nintendo's situation, that was the best move by Nintendo. More like the safest move they could have made. Not perfect, but just the no, safest. No, but very safe moves all the same. Yeah, and it's weird. It's nice to see like those two companies so different with such opposite problems tackled v- in such different ways. And a very similar device to answer those problems at the same time. Right. So that's all the stories we have for today. Carl? Um, thanks again for joining me and I hope to see you again next week. Good night, Paul and good luck.